0: Previously on Select and Start.
1: The Game Awards is a shallow institution. It doesn't celebrate video games or even the video game industry. A podcast host critiques the Game Awards. It is a show that celebrates companies. It celebrates the institution, not the industry. It is Rob Lowe wearing an NFL hat at a football game. And the host, Jeff Keeley knows what he's doing. I'm not going to say that the Halo 4 Doritos and Mountain Dew room was his 9-11. Let Miss Piggy make jokes about selling her bathwater. Now, in his hubris, he seeks to create his own video game awards show—the first annual Select and Start, Correct and Smart Game Awards. But can he do it alone? When will his ambitions get the best of him? One thing is for certain: wherever there's a show,
0: there needs to be a writer.
1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the first day. And then God said, Let there be games, and God saw that it was… frustrating. My name is Ellen Wake, I'm a writer. Welcome to the first ever Select and Start, Correct and Smart Video Game Awards. Hosted, written, and edited by me, Kiefer. With additional script contributions by Alan Wake. Usually on Select and Start, I bring on a guest to talk about a meaningful and memorable video game that made an impact on their life. Of course, things are a little bit different today. Today we are here to celebrate the meaningful and memorable video games released in 2023 a year that had an overwhelming number of quality releases. And we'll talk about them shortly. Before we spend the rest of the episode celebrating video games, I want to quickly acknowledge a serious issue. In my last episode, I used the 2023 Game Awards hosted by Jeff Keighley to examine the issues plaguing the video game industry. And one of my central criticisms of the Game Awards was how it purported to celebrate video games while completely disregarding the issues plaguing the people who make them. The mass layoffs went unacknowledged, even as people protested outside of the building where the event was held. The workers who give us so much are given very little, regardless of the success of the games and products that they work on. And on that night, Jeff Keighley couldn't even give them the basic recognition they deserved. In the first month of 2024 alone, nearly 5,700 people in the video games industry have been laid off. The most notable examples of which being the 1,800 people laid off at Unity, the 500 laid off at Twitch, The 530 laid off at Riot Games, who announced these layoffs to the public at the same time they did to their employees, and Microsoft, who laid off about 8% of their gaming division. 1,900 employees at Xbox, as well as ZeniMax and the recently acquired Activision Blizzard have lost their jobs this past January. Once again, nearly 5,700 people in the first month of 2024. In my previous episode, it was estimated that 10,500 people were laid off in the industry last year, meaning we're already nearly halfway there with 11 months to go. It is upsetting and thoroughly unsurprising that this issue is persisting and almost certainly growing in 2024. The fault does not lay with the employees, but with the people who run these companies who do not see their workforce as people and laborers, but as a direction of a line on a graph. It is unfair that these workers suffer the consequences of their employers' bad decisions. When you're laying off hundreds, even thousands of workers without stepping down yourself, you're passing your failures onto people far more vulnerable than you. You're playing with people's livelihoods. It's cruel. The wealthy executives at the top are striking at the foundation, unconcerned that they'll eventually topple the whole building. They're the real danger to the industry, and they need to be held accountable and face the consequences of their actions. The system's broken. And it needs to change. It feels wrong to celebrate the victories without acknowledging the losses. We need to do what we can to ensure a better world for as many people as possible. And that can't happen if we turn a blind eye to suffering. Dispel the notion that cowardice is safety. Cowardice is a weakness. Who does your cowardice save? You? A coward? And when you need to be saved, who do you expect to save you? And if you aren't saved, How will you be remembered? As a coward? All right, I think that's it. Enjoy the show. The first ever select and start, correct and smart game awards. Please welcome our first presenter, Gex the Gecko. Forget about it.
2: I love you ironically, Gex.
1: The host settled into the control booth in the back of the venue, intently watching the ironically iconic Gex the Gecko. So far, so good.
0: Whose voice is that? Thank you, thank you. Boy, I haven't seen the crowd this generous since I saw Ray Romano perform at a Catholic church. (laughs) But seriously, thank you for welcoming me back. As a gecko who hasn't worked in the industry in 25 years, I want to express my sincere condolences to the workers in the video game industry who have been laid off. I haven't seen nerds get screwed like that since I saw Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking on the Lolita Express. Oh, that's not. Note to self, don't tell people about the time I spent with Jeffrey Epstein.
1: The host watched helplessly from the control booth, mortified by the words being said by the gecko on stage. It was now obvious to him why no one had heard from Gex in 25 years. Tough crowd.
0: I get it. My material's a bit sweaty. I haven't seen something this sweaty since I saw Alan Dershowitz at Little St. James. I hate you
1: unironically, Gex. Whoops. Oh my god. I need to stop this. The host frantically searched the control booth for some way to silence the slimy salamander on his stage. Then, almost as if by a miracle, a button labeled, Please Wrap It Up, revealed itself on the soundboard. The host pressed it without hesitation. Oh my god. The button triggered a sniper from an unknown location who fired on the probably pedophilic pop culture obsessed provocateur, a direct shot to the heart, but Gex was the one to blame.
0: Oh my god! Someone shot me! Uh, uh, There hasn't been this much blood since I saw that one Paul Thomas Anderson film! Uh, Licorice Pizza! (coughs) Oh god! My life is flashing before my eyes! God, I watched a lot of movies! I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I'm melting! I'm melting! Oh, what a world! Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure playing with you tonight. That's all, folks.
1: I'm finished! Gex's body collapsed to the ground. After a lifetime of eating flies, his body would soon be surrounded by them. Because he was dead. Jesus fucking Christ, he's dead! The host wavered between shock and relief at the events that transpired before him, but urgency quickly took control. Oh, God, we need to go to break. Let's just play a quick trailer and give out the first award. Oh, God, I don't have any trailers. Um, just play the Zelda Twilight Princess trailer from E3 2004 and pretend it's new again. We'll be right back. I mean, if the episode's bad, I can just delete it. I shouldn't overthink it. Now we're back on. Wow, what a spectacular trailer from 20 years ago. Welcome back to the first ever Select and Start Correct and Smart Game Awards. Or should I just say, welcome! Because absolutely nothing happened before this very moment. Let's just jump right into the show. So many wonderful games were released in 2023. In my last episode, I spent an hour laying into the Game Awards and how I personally thought it fell short as an event that purportedly celebrates video games. But as I said in that episode, it doesn't meaningfully do that. And my show is about meaningful and memorable video game experiences. So I wanted to give my own award show a shot and celebrate the hard work and dedication that resulted in the video games that we loved from the past year. One problem, though, um, I didn't play a lot of video games from 2023 uh, because I was hosting a podcast about meaningful and memorable video game experiences. So naturally, most of the games that I played last year were from not 2023. I only played six games released in 2023, Um, and you'll hear what six games I played shortly. And I still want to celebrate and recognize the incredible work done to release the countless beloved titles from last year. Which leads me to my first award of the evening. My most anticipated game of last year. At the Game Awards, they present an award for the most anticipated upcoming game. And I personally take issue with that because it's one of the many things that make the event feel more like a marketing blitz than an award show so I'm going to reverse it. This is the award I hand out to a video game that came out last year, but I still haven't gotten around to yet. Now, there are so many games on this list. There are well over a dozen games I want to play from this year, but I've narrowed the list down to games I've already purchased, downloaded, or will most definitely purchase in the near future. And the nominees for my most anticipated game of last year are Armored Core 6 Baldur's Gate 3 Sea of Stars The Super Mario RPG Remake Star Wars Jedi Survivor Hi-Fi Rush And the winner is Baldur's Gate 3. Surprise! Uh, It's weird feeling like one of the few gaming podcasters to have not played Baldur's Gate 3, but I have been holding out for the physical release for reasons that should be obvious to those of you who listen to the show regularly. A game worthy of so much praise and admiration from critics and fans should be immortalized as much as possible, especially one that was clearly the product of so much hard work and dedication. Congratulations Baldur's Gate 3 for winning the first Select & Start Correct & Smart Most Anticipated Game Award. In addition to the money you will receive from me when the game is released, here is your trophy that is unseen because this is an audio-only podcast. Accepting the award on behalf of Baldur's Gate 3 is a character from a game I did play in 2023. One of the apes from Ape Escape. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's true. While I didn't play very many games that came out this year, I did play the entirety of Ape Escape. Why? Uh, Because it was good fun, the soundtrack kicks ass, and you shouldn't limit yourself to the goodies of a specific year. We cannot always live in the zeitgeist. We already put too much pressure on ourselves. Don't feel like you have to experience everything as soon as it comes out out of a self-imposed sense of FOMO. It's not the most enriching way to live your life, and it is a huge financial burden to do that. Well, that just sounds like you're a broke boy making excuses for himself. Uh, who said that? A figure emerged from the shadows. More specifically, an iconic figure of both the writing and video game morals. The iconic figure was wearing multiple jackets, a metaphor for the multiple layers to contain the layers of depth he too possesses. The allegorical became literal. The literal is me. My name is Alan Wake. I'm a writer. Oh my god, it's Alan Wake from Remedy Games' it's Alan Wake in control. Mr. Wake, it's an honor to meet you. Thank you for the... Wait, what about my other games? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but I, I haven't gotten around to Alan Wake's American Wasteland yet. It's called Alan Wake's American Nightmare. What about Alan Wake 2? Multiple outlets listed as one of the best games of the year. It was nominated in eight categories at this year's Game Awards and won three, including Best Narrative. And that's why I'm here, to win writing awards. My name is Alan Wake. I'm a writer. Look, um, it was a busy year, man. I didn't have enough time to get around to Alan Wake 2. What do you mean you didn't play it? I thought my presence here was a setup for me to win an award. Uh, no. I mean, I played the first Alan Wake a few weeks ago, and I liked it a lot. And it's, it's, it's definitely been on my mind lately. So you mean to tell me that I'm here because you played the first Alan Wake game recently, and it made a meaningful and memorable impact on you? Yeah. But you didn't play Alan Wake 2. And I'm not up for any awards tonight. Correct. Well, that's fucking stupid. I couldn't care less if you connected with that old game. That doesn't win me anything. I'm here to win awards. My name is Alan Wake. I'm a writer. Look, I'm sorry, man. Life's been hard lately. I've been in kind of a dark place, and I haven't gotten around to as many games as I'd hoped. I haven't even played enough new games this year to justify a writing category. I understand. As a writer, I also understand not having enough time to do enriching activities. You know, I'm in a dark place myself. Really? Yes. I'm literally trapped in an alternate dimension called the dark place. Oh. Also, my wife left me. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. I had no idea. Is there anything Mm -hmm. I can do to help? Well, there is one thing you can do. Let me decide the winner for best writing. I feel like I can speak to this category because I'm a writer. Really? My name is Alan Wake. I'm a writer. Yeah, I know that. I meant that I think you're only doing this so you can give yourself an award for best writing. No, 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 no. I'm perfectly capable of being impartial and unbiased. Yeah, I don't know, man. The host hesitated. The look on his face was difficult to read. I'm a writer, not a reader. You really don't pause between your sentences, do you? Of course not. They're called periods, not eras. Oh, God. The host had a look of disgust on his face, much more familiar. Then, another familiar look, one of pity. Like he knew I was desperate. Sure, whatever. Thank you, you have no idea how much this means to me. And the winner for best writing in a video game is Alan Wake 2. God fucking damn it, I it. Accepting the award for best writing in a video game is Alan Wake, he's a writer. Thank you. My name is Alan Wake, I'm a writer. I know that I won this award because I wrote it into existence. But the fact I did so only proves how good of a writer I am. My name is Alan Wake. I'm a writer. All right, we get it. Satisfied with his contribution to this disaster presenting itself as an award show, Alan walked off the stage and returned to the darkness in the wings, wielding only a flashlight to guide him through the void. A lone beam of warmth in an empty cold, a lantern that- I said we get it, Alan. Jesus fucking Christ, that guy. Never meet your heroes, I guess. Alan Wake's a long winded guy who seems to love himself as much as he hates himself, but he did bring to light a certain issue plaguing this award show. The fact that I didn't actually play a lot of video games from 2023. In 2023, I played and finished a total of 22 games. About a third of those games I played were specifically so I could talk about them on Select and Start. Since this is a video game award show by a video game podcast that talks about meaningful and memorable video games, regardless of what year they were released, I wanted to use some space to recognize my favorite games from outside of the year, especially since so much of this show is dedicated to talking about game preservation and making older titles playable to as many people as possible. There's this other video game podcast I really like, Into the Aether, and they have a Goatee special at the end of each year, and in these specials they make space to talk about their favorite games of the other years, or the GoToys as they call it. I want to do a similar thing here, but I don't want to completely rip them off. So my version of this will be called the games outside of the year or the goodies. God, it sounds even worse when you read it out loud. God fucking damn it. Okay. I'm going to power through it. We're going to power through it. So before we move on to the other categories, here are a few of my favorite goodies. A lot of my favorite games that I played in 2023 were actually games I played for the podcast. I finished Metroid Prime for the first time this year. That's an incredible game, and I want to thank Mark Normandon who picked the game to talk about on the show so I could fully immerse myself into this truly wonderful game. I finished a playthrough of an emulated version of the game just a couple weeks before the remaster was ported to the Switch in February, which was extremely funny timing on my part. Obviously, since the version I played was the Wii version that I emulated, it counts as a game outside of the year. I do have a physical copy of the Switch remaster now, though and I'll definitely be revisiting this game sooner than later. I'm also grateful that my friend Chloe, one of the hosts of the Girls Gone Canon cast, got me to play Final Fantasy VIII for the first time in 2023. Final Fantasy VIII isn't as discussed as Final Fantasy VII or Final Fantasy IX, but I had a wonderful time with it. It was a very different RPG at the time it was released, and even now, some aspects of it still feel singular. So thank you again, Chloe, for putting me onto it and for talking about it on the show. I also played Phoenix Wright as Attorney for the first time because of this show. Thank you Kev for introducing me to the series and for introducing me to the visual novel adventure genre. I thought the first game was thrilling and I can't wait to play through the rest of the series, especially with the Apollo Justice trilogy coming out at the end of January. It's just a great time to get into this series. Eric Peacock from Soundtracker got me to play Spiritfarer, a cozy management game about dying released by Thunder Lotus in 2020. That game provoked the strongest emotional reactions of any video game I played that year. It was a deeply emotional experience. Thanks again for introducing me to it, Eric. The Moonshot Network's very own Andrew Sherman got me to play the roguelike deck building game Inscription, which was developed by Daniel Mellon's Games and published by Devolver Digital in 2021. That game felt custom made for me in the way that it blended its narrative with the gameplay. Love roguelikes, love what it does with the story. I can't wait for Daniel Mellon's next game. Maybe I'll even play it the year it comes out. But these are all games I played specifically for the show and talked about at length in different episodes. Other wonderful games I played for the first time through the show include the 2005 video game adaptation of The Warriors, which was brought to me by my buddy Roman. And speaking of movie-to-game adaptations, Jason Kleberg from Force 5 brought GoldenEye 007 to the show, and until this year, I never finished a single-player campaign of that game. And before my friend Lauren introduced me to Phantasmagoria, I'd never really played a 90s point-and-click game in my adult life. And playing such a singular game in the point-and-click genre was such an important learning experience for me as someone who loves the medium of video games and wants to experience the weird specificities it can offer. I'm extremely grateful to be in the position that I have never played a game for the show that I didn't like. With all of that being said, I don't want to award a game someone else brought to the show as my personal favorite Goody because discussing these games for the show is already a reward. These games have proven themselves by living forever in the hearts of my guests. These were meaningful and memorable games to them, and through them, they will always be meaningful and memorable experiences to me. I think a bias will always exist after researching a game and talking about it with someone else at length because there will be a deeper appreciation that exists when approaching a game under those specific circumstances. So for the very first Select and Start Correct and Smart Game Awards, the game I will award as my favorite game outside of the year of 2023 will be one I haven't covered on the podcast. This game stuck with me as an experience completely independent of the show. And the goody goes to Yakuza Kiwami 2. I'm a tremendous fan of the Yakuza series so far, and I've been playing through the series at a rate of about a game a year now. And I'd like to pick up the pace a bit, because Like a Dragon Infinite welts out at the end of January, not to mention the two spin-off games that came out in 2023, Like a Dragon Ishin' and Like a Dragon Gaiden, the man who erased his name. By the way, for those who haven't played the series yet, they have changed the name in the West. This is sort of to maintain a worldwide unity in a naming convention and branding in Japan, where was where it was always called. Like a Dragon. When the series was first introduced in the West, they used the title Yakuza for the original game and its subsequent entries because it was a flashier name that they thought would be a bigger draw. And it took a while for the series to take off, but when it finally did, and God did it deserve to, they stuck with the naming convention until the release of Yakuza Like a Dragon, which came out in 2020. And moving forward, the subsequent entries of the series have been called Like a Dragon. And while I worry about the confusion and understand the reflexive fear of change, I do understand it because Yakuza wasn't the most accurate title for the franchise. The series' protagonist, Kazuma Kiryu, was in the Yakuza, and the conflict of the series is driven by Yakuza politics, but the series is so much more than crime drama and gang wars. Kiryu isn't a typical protagonist of a crime drama. His arc is that of someone trying to better himself and the people around him. And the reason he gets entangled in the drama is because he has a reputation that makes him feared and respected. In reality, though, he's just a sincere doofus who loves his friends and has a strong sense of loyalty and devotion. He is not Henry Hill from Goodfellas. If anything, he's much closer to Hank Hill if Hank Hill made good on his promise to kick people's asses. And it's that characterization that makes Yakuza Kiwami 2 such a good game. He's such a wonderful protagonist that you get to see grow and mature while also maintaining that sincere cluelessness. It's a lot of fun. The story of the Yakuza games are great. And the way that they connect on a narrative and gameplay level is truly incredible. Since the setting stays the same across each game as time passes, the Kamurocho and Sotinbury districts feel like hometowns that change in its subtle or extreme ways across entries. They feel like a living town and not like a playground or sandbox as we traditionally see in open world games. The Akaza games are one third life simulator, one third beat-em-up, and one third RPG. And that greatly impacts the way that you explore the world and your relationship with that space, because the world of Yakuza is what really sets this series apart. The world that you explore is smaller but more densely packed. The story is great, but what makes these games truly special are the sub-stories and diversions you run into while going about town. Some of these side stories are dramatic and emotional, like helping an old friend deal with a biker gang from his past. Some help complete strangers in meaningful and impactful ways, like encouraging the director of a beloved movie franchise not to give up after the poor reception to his last film. And others are just funny, like when you kick a mob boss's ass because he has a diaper fetish and he's forcing his diaper fetish onto everybody else and they're making him uncomfortable. That is an actual substory. The Yakuza games are long, densely packed games, but I love every minute of them, and I can't wait to make my way through the rest of the franchise. Congratulations, Yakuza Kiwami 2, for winning the first ever Guri. I'm also sorry that it's called Guri, but also congratulations. Now, the Yakuza series is published by SEGA, who recently have been accused of retaliating against their newly formed union by announcing layoffs that would affect nearly half of the unionized employees. And it's important that I balance the praise I offer a game with the criticisms I have of their publisher. Out of solidarity with the workers whose livelihoods are being impacted by Sega's underhanded corporate tactics, no one will be accepting an award on behalf of Yakuza Kiwami 2 today. The host also couldn't think of a decent gag for this one. It can be two things, Alan. Go be meta somewhere else. Alright, what other categories do we have today? Uh, Let me check my notes. Um, Okay, Um, I don't remember writing this down. Uh, Sure, let's go for it. 2023 saw the release of what feels like countless titles. Even if I spent all of my free time last year playing new releases, I still wouldn't have been able to play every game I wanted to check out. One of the unfortunate things about life is how limited our free time is and how we may never get around to everything we want to see, read, watch, or play. In fact, what the hell am I doing here? I could be gaming right now. The point is, truly overwhelming number of games came out in 2023. That being said, A number of popular titles were released that year that I simply have no interest in playing. Games I can confidently look at and say, I'm not playing that shit. Which brings us to our next award, the I'm not playing that shit award. Seems a little mean-spirited, but sure, okay, let's see this through. The nominees for I'm not playing that shit are Assassin's Creed Mirage, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, not to be mistaken for the other Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, Hogwarts Legacy, Overwatch 2, and Payday 3. And the winner of the I'm-not-playing-that-shit award is... Hogwarts Legacy! <laughs> Accepting the award for Hogwarts Legacy is J.K. Rowling's new character, Transpo Bic. Uh, Hello! Firstly, I wanted to say thank you, uh, not for this award, but to Alan Wake for making me real, so I could accept this award on behalf of my creator, J.K. Rowling. uh, I I wanted to use my platform to remind people that J.K. Rowling once said that Dumbledore would oppose a boycott of Israel. That was a real thing she said in 2015. That was something that she thought was a productive use of her time. That was a real thing she wrote. Uh, Long live the new flesh. Oh my God, the spotlights are hurting Transpo. Oh my God, the Veil of Darkness surrounding Transpo has dissipated, making him vulnerable to physical attacks. I thought that Veil of Darkness was because he was a British Turf, but it turns out it's because Alan Wake manifested him into reality with his writing. Oh my God, Alan Wake is here with a gun. There's only enough room for one hack writer in this world. Eat lead, you brainchild of a bigot. He's shooting Transpo. He is shooting Transpo multiple times with a gun. Okay, he stopped shooting. Oh, he's reloading. And he's shooting transpo again. Okay. And he's dead. Transpo is dead. Alan Wake is now the recipient of two awards, currently by force. My name is Alan Woke. I'm an ally. Oh my God. Ask me how many genders there are. I I don't think I want to, Alan. As many as I can think of, because I'm a writer. Okay, Mr. Writer. Um. Are you adding more categories to my show so you keep having excuses show up? Because I didn't, I didn't write this one down. People are always asking me about pronouns. Of course I'm pronouns, because I'm a writer. Please wrap it up. Satisfied that his allyship was awarded publicly, Alan Wake left the stage so the selfish host could go back to making it about himself. Christ, what a fucking asshole. But uh, congratulations to Hogwarts Legacy for the only award it will ever get. I'm not playing that shit. Kind of a mean award category, but at least it went to a deserving target. Uh, if this award category made you mad, it wasn't me. It was Alan. Alan did that. Um, please send all of your hate mail directly to him. He lives in a dark place. If you need the address, I looked it up. It's just the number zero. So yeah, send it, send it there. Send it to the dark place. Moving on, next award. Funniest game title. This isn't an award. For the funniest game of 2023. No. And this isn't me making fun of the quality of any games. No. This is specifically an award for the game that has the funniest title. Like I said, I didn't play a lot of new games this year, guys. I'm really reaching for categories. And the nominees for funniest game title are... Thirsty Suitors. Star Wars Jedi. Colon. Survivor. The Murder of Sonic the Hedgehog. Ultimate Sack Boy. Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 3 and Lies of P. And the winner is. Of course, Lies of P. <laughs> Congratulations, Lies of P. I haven't played the game yet. I heard really good things about it. I know it's heavily influenced by Bloodborne, which is supremely my shit. Uh, I won't be able to get around to it for a while, but this is a game I do really want to play. Uh, Since I don't really know much about this game's depiction of Pinocchio, accepting the award on Lies of P's behalf is the fucking asshole Geppetto from Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio.
0: I hate you, Lies of P. God hates you too. Every time I look at you, I see my own failures. You'll never replace Bloodborne. You should have been Bloodborne 2 instead. I hope God kills you.
1: You are an abomination. Thank you, asshole Geppetto. And congratulations again to Liza P. All right. Look, no more joke categories. I want to talk about the games from 2023 that I actually did play. I played very few, and I wish I'd played more. But I can truthfully and confidently say that I enjoyed everything I played from last year. I played six games from 2023, and here's what I'm going to do. The rest of this episode will be a countdown to the game of the year. I'm going to talk about each of the games that I played in 2023, and sort of talk about them in an ascending order from the game I enjoyed the least, but obviously still had a good time with, leading all the way to the game of the year. So let's talk about number six. Number six is a game I've brought up in multiple episodes. It's Chia by Awaseb Games. talked about in the last episode. I talked about it in the Wind Waker episode I did with Hamish Steele. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it, but it is a cute, adorable, open world exploration action adventure game where you play as the title character Chia and explore a world inspired by New Caledonia. And I thought that this game was very cute. I love the way that it incorporates the gameplay of Zelda games like Breath of the Wild and Wind Waker to tell its story. It's a game that's made as a labor of love to a country that has a rich and beautiful culture and history that most people are not pretty to. And I really admire that because it's incredible that the medium of video games can be used as as this canvas to express something so lovingly and artistically. It is not a very challenging game. In fact, you can actually skip any gameplay segments at any time. It is a game that is basically inviting you to experience it, but also giving you the leeway to move forward if you are not feeling any particular section. The physics are very fun. I love how it incorporates aspects of Zelda's gameplay with also Mario Odyssey's gameplay. Chia's special ability is being able to take control of the bodies of various animals in the archipelagos that you explore, as well as inanimate objects, whether those are logs and logs that can catch on fire and then be thrown at enemies to set them ablaze or You can just turn yourself into a rock and roll around as a rock and also throw yourself as a rock being the first game from a studio and being such a big project it is definitely a game that has ambitions and doesn't quite meet all of them at the level that it's trying to get at but i do really deeply admire it and i'm glad that this game was released so thank you so much awaseb i really look forward to your future projects when chia won the games for impact award at the game awards shuhei yoshida a representative from sony interactive entertainment major corporation accepted the award on behalf of Awaseb. In that spirit, a representative for a major corporation will be doing the same at the Correct and Smart Awards. Accepting this award for recognition on behalf of Chia is Dave the Diver. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, Dave the Diver is accepting the award in full diving gear. That's interesting. Keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. Alan Wake stormed onto the stage, wearing his rage like a fitted suit, perfect for the sham of an award show. Alan began to raise his hand into the air as the distance between him and Dave the Diver closed. Oh my God, Alan Wake to slap Dave the Diver. Oh my God! What a horrific thing to do at an institution as sacred as an award show where we reward entertainment. He could have killed him. Dave the Diver was stunned, scared shitless. So shitless, in fact, that he shit in his pants. (laughs) What the fuck, Alan, what the fuck? That was way over the line. The host of the awards show also shit in his pants. Cut the commercial, cut the commercial, cut the commercial.
0: Need a new campaign idea for your tabletop role-playing game?
2: Looking to improve your GMing skills or become a better player?
0: Curious about exploring the origins of your favorite races,
2: classes, and creatures? Then check out the Maniculum Podcast, where we show you how to use medieval history to your advantage. We're your hosts, Mac and Zoe, a professional medievalist and a triple-A game developer, and together we use modern game design techniques to uncover the origins of your favorite tropes and adventures from medieval manuscripts. In each episode, we explore a new medieval manuscript, its connections to modern TTRPGs, and teach you how to adapt these tales into compelling campaigns and amazing adventures.
0: Whether you're looking to recreate the noble Arthurian tales or incorporate weird and wacky medieval monsters into your campaign, the Maniculum podcast has you covered.
2: Listen to our fortnightly podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcasting app now.
1: Hi, welcome back. I apologize for that sudden interruption. I wanted to share a quick update with you. Dave the Diver has elected not to press charges against Alan Wake. Likely out of the kindness of his heart, but also equally likely because Alan Wake wrote that into reality. Speaking of Alan Wake, he ran off with the award after Dave the Diver's, um, wardrobe malfunction. That makes it now three awards for Alan Wake this evening. What a hell of a night for him. And just hell for the rest of us. Let's talk about my fifth favorite game of the year. Coming in at number five is. Street Fighter VI. I've said this before in my Tekken 2 episode. I'm not good at fighting games, but I like to play them anyway. What makes a fighting game good to me is when I'm able to have fun, even though I'm not great at the game. And Street Fighter 6 does a great job of teaching me how to play the game in a way that isn't overwhelming, but more importantly, it's a blast. It looks and sounds incredible, and it is so much fun. I also want to praise the idea of dividing the single player campaign and the multiplayer into two separate downloads out of consideration for how much space a AAA game can take up on a console with limited storage. I don't think they did a good job communicating to the players how to download everything, that certainly was a point of frustration for me, but I appreciate them doing it for the chorus of people, myself included, constantly screaming about how video games are taking up too much space. And speaking of the separate modes, I really had fun with Street Fighter VI's World Tour mode. World Tour is a single-player mode where you can create your own fighter in the Street Fighter universe and train among different dojos run by the various characters in the game's roster. It's a shockingly dense story mode. Not only does it have its own open world, but basically every NPC is someone you can fight. Shopkeepers, food vendors, pedestrians, old ladies, fucking drones. Everyone is DTF. That's down to fight. Most of them you have to challenge yourself, but some people, namely hooligans and criminals, actively accost you and want to fight. The more you fight, the more your level goes up. It is an RPG. It is a fucking fighting game RPG. They Pokemon Street Fighter and it works. This is a very specific reference, but back in 2007 Ubisoft developed and published a Naruto game for the Xbox 360 and I would play it at a friend's house. The combat was a traditional fighting game, but the campaign had an explorable open-ish It really harkened back to that game, and I'm genuinely shocked to see something like that exist again over 16 years later. Especially with how long it takes to develop a game these days. The story is trivial. The character creator has a lot to it, but your character will never really look like a classic Street Fighter character. You'll definitely stand out during cutscenes. And veteran fans will definitely find themselves frustrated in the early bits of the game as it slowly introduces mechanics that have been incumbent to the series for a while. It's almost too much in a lot of ways. And yet, in spite of that, I unabashedly love it. It is a great way of onboarding newcomers to the franchise. Your custom character unlocks the movesets by training with various Street Fighter characters, so you can also play around with different styles in a casual setting. This is what I spent the most of my playtime doing, and I had a blast. Video game development takes such a long time, and I never imagined seeing a fighting game do this much for a campaign, but it is delightful. It obviously reminds me of the Yakuza games, which I just mentioned earlier, some of my favorite games ever. If you love the Street Fighter VI campaign and you haven't played Yakuza, you gotta do it. And a standard multiplayer mode is a blast too, of course. Uh, the drive system is a nice change of pace, basically designed to stress me the fuck out. Uh, I love that Ken's divorced now. Hell of a year for Ken's. It's great that I finally have a multiplayer game on the PlayStation 5. I can play this casually with friends for a bit. I've had some friends over chess to play with the character creator. And that is a blast all on its own. It's not perfect. In addition to my previous criticisms, the multiple in-game currency scares and overwhelms me. It leans too heavily on the live service battle pass bullshit in a way that I can't help but feel cynical about, but the core experience is so good that the issues don't ruin it for me. Like I said earlier, I still want to recognize and award these games even if they aren't my number one game of the year because I want to honor the time that I spent with you. And what better place to do that than at an award show I made up and can arbitrarily set the rules for? So congratulations to Street Fighter VI for being my number five game of the year. Accepting the Spotlight Award on behalf of Street Fighter Six is Ken, because he is one of the only characters in the roster I feel comfortable doing an impression of. Wow, thank you. It means so much to win this participation trophy after my wife has chosen to no longer participate in our marriage. I wanted to share three quick Street Fighter facts while I have the stage. Fact number one. The 1994 Street Fighter II animated movie had an English dub, and Brian Cranston voiced Baylong in it. I just thought that was interesting. Fact number two. The English dub also replaced the original movie's score with a bunch of 90s alt rock. So there's a scene where you can hear me talk about marriage with my now ex-wife, while Dem Bones by Alice in Chains blares so loudly that it almost drowns out what's being said. Seriously, guys, watch this English dub. I can't be alone with these thoughts. Fact number three, I miss my wife. I miss my wife so much. I am so sad that she left me. I hear that, brother. Thank you, Alan Wake. Thank you again for this award. Good night. This is Ken's first win since losing his wife. Congratulations Street Fighter 6. We aren't done yet of course, we still have a few more awards to hand out, so let's talk about my number 4 game of the year, Spider-Man 2. So let's talk about Spider-Man. I rolled credits on Insomniac's Marvel Spider-Man 2 a few weeks ago, and I must say it is an improvement over the first. It's not a sequel that redefines the original. It's just like a series of refinements, but I really enjoy those refinements. Now, when I started taking notes for this episode, I had written some praise for Insomniac, for the ways that they've been able to release finished single-player game experiences at a consistent pace relative to other studios, like. Naughty Dog for example and then there was a leak by hackers (laughs) that showed basically what the inner workings of Insomniac are like. We are not privy to a lot of the inner machinations of the video game development world and I'm not saying this as a way of uh, endorsing the behavior and the intentions of the hackers. They were doing it purely for financial reasons, they were not doing this to They're not doing this for transparency reasons. But some illuminating information came out of that document, Uh, specifically the budget of uh, Spider-Man 2. Insomniac's Marvel's Spider-Man 2 cost $300 million to make. This would make it one of the most expensive video games ever made. And the reason I bring up the leak, aside from the fact that it is a big elephant in the room and it would be kind of weird to not acknowledge it uh, while talking about uh, Insomniac's Marvel's Spider-Man 2, is because my critiques of the game might be going hand in hand with the, the budget, which is not to say, oh, this game looks too expensive. I think it's just a matter of what this team decided to prioritize. Uh, and look, the, 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 the issue of what goes into making a Spider-Man product is certainly a hot button issue. Uh, fuck you, Phil Lord, for treating your animators like that for the Spider-Verse films. But let, let, let's have this conversation with the video game side of things for here real quick. I really like a lot of what Insomniac's Marvel Spider-Man 2 does in terms of how the game actually feels to play. You know, it's hard not to be an opinionated Spider-Man fan. I think a core appeal of Spider-Man is his limitations, not the power fantasy necessarily. I think there's a balance that you strike with that character. I said as much in the Spider-Man episode I did with Avery a couple months ago, and I was apprehensive about the mechanics of like gliding and the ways that you move about the world that practically feels like flying. And I actually got to say, in the implementation side of things, I am perfectly okay with it. It feels great. The game is doing a lot of stuff right in terms of uh, realizing the fantasy of being Spider-Man, even if it feels like you're almost too powerful in a certain way. But there's stuff that just feels like it wasn't the most productive use of effort. And I am specifically looking at things like the side missions you do as Peter, where you're doing green capitalism throughout the city. There's like environmentalism side missions that kind of feel like mandatory HR training. And I like the game overall, but there is just like little things like that that feel weird and the things that you do, like solving molecule puzzles or piloting little bee drones don't meaningfully add to the experience of being Spider-Man. And I'm not saying that everything has to be Spider-Man 100% all the time in a Spider-Man game, but it does feel like we are straying very far from the path when we... Are doing things like that that never really cohere into the main story. It just feels like busy work to do unlockables. I would say those are like the weak parts of the game. And when you see that this game has a three hundred million dollar budget and they're introducing so many different mechanics, and again, these mechanics don't necessarily cohere to the main experience, I have to question why they did this. And I think the reason is padding. Uh, the game doesn't feel especially long. It feels like it is a game that's trying to justify being a triple A game in length. Because the scope and scale of everything is in a triple A space, it's like they're trying to stretch fifteen hours of stuff into thirty hours of stuff, and that's why we have, and that's why we have stuff like uh, Mary Jane, Peter, and Harry go to the carnival, which in concept is a really, really cute idea. In execution, I don't really see what it does on an interactive level. Uh, obviously, the downtime and the supporting characters are a crucial part of the Spider-Man story. But I don't really know how I feel about the ways that they weave in things. <laughs> and things like the school mission where you're listening to the shins and cage the elephant uh, while reminiscing on your past with Harry. Things like that are cute. And I was totally fine with that level. Things like the carnival just feel, it feels a little excessive. Like why they have to make like riding a bicycle a mechanic in the game? Or um the bees and the and the molecules and so on and so forth. If again they're not really things that constructively add uh to the experience. It's it's weird. Again, I think the game mostly works. There's some takes that I really enjoy. I think it's very interesting how they handle Harry, the way they fold in Harry and Norman and their dynamic with one another, as well as Harry's dynamic with Peter and Mary Jane. I think it is refreshing. I think without getting too much into spoilers, I think that what they do uh, cleans up things a little bit and it's a new interesting take on some stuff that fascinated me don't know how I feel about Craven the Hunter having an army my personal opinions like again I, as a Spider-Man fan I do have convictions about things so I don't really know how I feel about him having a whole army in my opinion Craven the Hunter seems like a person that's either so stubborn that they have to do it alone or they are in competition with other people but I would say like the Craven stuff is mixed uh, there's stuff I really liked about it, stuff I didn't care for, but yeah, overall I'm positive on the experience. I really like the way that Miles's side story, side stuff works. The way most of his side missions feel like community building in Harlem, community building at his school. The Mysterium stuff is some of the better side stuff in the game, probably the best side stuff in the game. And while he doesn't get like the most to do in the main story because so much of it is driven by you know Peter Parker, Mary Jane. Harry Osborne stuff, incumbent Spider-Man stuff, it doesn't feel like he gets too, too much to do in the central game. And they try, they certainly try, but I do think he gets to shine more in the side stuff, which is not ideal, but there is some stuff there that I really like about this take on Miles that really makes it feel distinct from the Spider-Verse version that most people are familiar with. So, yeah, in conclusion, Spider-Man is a land of contrasts, And while I have mixed feelings on a lot of things, it was ultimately an experience that I felt was worthwhile and that's why it is my number four game of 2023. So accepting the award for Insomniac's Marvel's Spider-Man 2 is one of the Spider-Men in the game, the older Spider-Man. This is Spider-Man 2's first win after being nominated for seven categories at the Game Awards and winning zero. Hi everyone, Spidey here. A little weird that you guys went out of your way to say that I didn't win at a different awards show, but hey, Spider-Man's used to losing and getting humiliated. Anyway, thank you for this, uh... Hey, just to be clear, this is a Game of the Year award, right? Actually, no, it's more of a you didn't win Game of the Year, but here's a consolation prize thing. Oh, okay. But it is an award, right? Yeah. I'll take it then. (laughs) Wow, what a humble guy. Let's keep this thing rolling. Speaking of things that got a movie and a game in the same year, let's talk about Mario for a second. What a year it's been for Mario, and one that feels like the biggest turning point for the character since Super Mario 64. I don't have strong feelings about the Super Mario Brothers movie, and we don't know so much about the production process, but I think it is demonstrative of a change Uh, Time will tell if it's Nintendo uh, showing a willingness to loosen their grip on the leash of their intellectual property. Obviously, Nintendo was involved in the production in some capacity. There was definitely a lot of supervision going on there. But the fact that they were willing to do that uh, shows that sensibilities are shifting and they're willing to let people use Mario more. I think things like re-releasing Super Mario RPG and Paper Mario, Thousand Year Door are also indicative of that. It feels like Mario, not entirely, but for the most part has been locked in in a specific style like the new Super Mario Brothers style where we haven't really gotten more adventurous takes on Mario. And this year uh, has done a lot to show the different different facets and opportunities uh, there are for Mario and things sort of have to change because we have a new voice for Mario. Uh, I mean, not just Chris Pratt, obviously, but with uh, Kevin Afghani uh, replacing Charles Martinet as the voice of Mario and Luigi. Now, that, that is also another sign that things sort of have to change with Mario. Like, we are getting used to the idea of things changing. I'm not saying that so many radical changes are happening, but there are shifts happening with Mario. I think Super Mario Wonder is a very good representation of the way that things are shifting at Nintendo, with regards to Mario at least, in the sense where it is a 2D Mario game, a side-scrolling game, we've had plenty of those before, but this is the first one that we had since New Super Mario Bros. U. And this is one that does a lot of little changes in a way that adds up to something that feels almost transformative. There's the obvious things, like the art style being very different. This is the first time that it hasn't had that sort of generic house Super Mario, new Super Mario Brothers style that's plagued the 2D games since at least 2005. The the, the new the new mechanics that they introduce with the badges, where your powers, where you have an additional power or ability or buff or even nerf that changes how you interact with the level each time you return to it with a different badge. The way that they use these sort of online ghosts that feels halfway between uh, Dark Souls and Death Stranding to change how the game is played when you turn the online functionality on in the game these are showing shifts they're they're very interesting changes that are promising and very exciting this is a very good video game and it feels refreshing to see mario like this um and it feels like a great blend of old and new and i feel like that's because uh internally they were doing a lot of (laughs) this game was a mix of old and new they were using newer talent younger talent To work on the game but the game was supervised and produced by the people who worked on super mario world and i think that is exactly what this game needed to be a move in a new direction but one that was sort of guided by institutional talent that have proved themselves to know what they're doing i guess this game feels really special i think it's the best uh traditional mario it's the best 2d mario game that we've gotten since yoshi's island I don't like this game simply for what it represents. I think it's super fun. I really love the powers. I really love the music. The music is incredibly good. The Wonder Seed stuff makes the fact that they have a level gimmick with these Wonder Seeds and the level gimmick almost never repeats itself is incredible. It feels like this was a game that was years in the making and they had all the time in the world to work on it. Uh and didn't let it out until they were sure it was ready. And that's smart, obviously. Most video games don't get that privilege. I'm not being reverential of Nintendo. It it says a lot that a 2D Mario game that is not groundbreaking really, but it's just super polished and gives us some really neat and original ideas. Stands very comfortably next to games that had hundreds of millions of dollars thrown at it and years and years of development time on it. It's it's a testament to just making a damn good game and it's good that they are striving for more than consistent by moving past the new Super Mario Brothers logo and doing something new with Wonder. I had a lovely, lovely time with Wonder. Super Mario Wonder is my third favorite game of 2023. Accepting the runner-up award is the Wonder himself, Super Mario. unbelievable. For those of you who don't speak Italian, Mario just used his time on stage to reaffirm the legitimacy of the Mushroom Kingdom's monarchy. He said that Princess Peach's rule is divine, and any authority that dares question it not only goes against God, but against Mario as well. This is a terrifying and authoritative statement that I vehemently disagree with, but he also delivered this speech while he was in his small form, so it was kind of adorable. I am shaken to my core, but the man's charisma cannot be denied. Congratulations to Super Mario Wonder, I suppose. Speaking of games that don't reinvent the wheel, but are just really damn good, let's talk about my second favorite game of 2023. Resident Evil 4 Remake. The original Resident Evil 4 was not a game that needed a remake. It is a game that has notoriously been ported to countless devices in the nearly 20 years since its original 2005 release. These ports are a testament to the game's enduring quality, serving as the template for the third-person action games developed in its wake. The original game holds up, and I can certainly see why people would say a remake isn't necessary. When you think about it, the idea of a remake is offensive, and we think that because when something is remade, it is rarely done with pure intentions. The channels through which art is made are obviously very capitalistic. There's never been an ideal time to be an artist. And that's not to say that there aren't good remakes, revivals, reboots, and so on. I've offered my praise for works like Twin Peaks The Return, Final Fantasy VII Remake, and the Evangelion Rebuilds because of how they interact with the idea of revisiting an acclaimed work. But remakes don't have to reckon with the legacy of the original in text to be good either. There's plenty of incredible remakes that don't do that. The Departed is a remake. Cape Fear is a remake. Martin Scorsese's made remakes. There's nothing shameful about being a remake. But remakes usually have so much to overcome because they'll always be compared to the original by the people consuming it, and the people creating it are constantly aware of the original's existence. It is a complicated task. There is a tremendous weight on the creator's shoulders, and there are so many different expectations going on in the minds of the people who are going to approach this work. It's very complex. There's there's so many factors that go into it, But when it comes to the issue of remaking Resident Evil 4, there's only two questions you need to ask. What are you buying? What are you selling? Look, I don't have anything unique or insightful to say about Resident Evil 4 remake. There's no intellectual justification for it as a game, and there doesn't have to be. I can talk about the nature of remakes and art and the conditions under which they're made all day, but you can parry a projectile with a knife. And that gives me the kind of euphoria that only the interactive medium of video games can achieve. This game is phenomenal. It looks amazing. It sounds amazing. It plays amazing. God, it fucking plays amazing. And Remake doesn't have to recontextualize the original. It doesn't have to reckon with the legacy of the original. Sometimes a remake can just be a really fucking good refinement of the original. And this game really fucking does a great job at preserving the core appeal of Resident Evil 4 And adding to it in a tasteful way it doesn't go too far it is just talented people working off of an incredible template to make an incredible game resident evil 4 is exactly the kind of thing i'll buy at a high price and that's why it's my second favorite game of 2023 Uh, we wanted to get the resident evil 4 merchant to accept this award but the get played podcast already uses him as a recurring character on their show and i didn't want to overstep so accepting the award is the game's protagonist, Leon Kennedy. Wow. Thank you for this Leon, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to play you off. The Alan Wake bits took up too much time. That stupid copycat asshole jealousy is a disease gay boy i'm not gay you hack well you better not be homophobic because it would only take me 30 seconds to write the words you're gay and make it true why would it take you 30 seconds to write two words hey i've got depression asshole. why don't you just write that you aren't depressed anymore oh look at that he's ableist too everyone look at the ableist homophobe this institution is rewarding alan stop trying to smear resident evil 4 remake so you can take the reward you already have three isn't that enough you sound like my editor. Isn't that enough? No, it needs at least 200 more pages and be describing the history of how one particular statue was erected in this town the book is set in. It's the centerpiece of the novel. Between Street Fighter VI and Resident and Evil 4 Remake, there's a lot of Capcom representation on my top games of 2023. Great games, Capcom. Now, if you would stop putting performance-reducing DRM into your back catalog to keep players from modding these games under the guise of cheating concerns, that'd be fucking cool. What fucking sense does it make to alienate your community by punishing their passion and enthusiasm? I've also read that Capcom is copy-striking Monster Hunter videos on YouTube because they're using mods. That's loser shit. what they stand to lose by doing bullshit like that is far more than they have to game. It is anti-consumer. I fucking hate it. Get over yourselves. Your pride will be your undoing, Capcom. You grossly underestimate how badly the fans want to see Leon Kennedy wear a G-string in a game they pay good money to play. And now you want to say their money's no good? Leon, that is not an invitation to actually put on a thong. You are not buying stage time with that. Putting a blanket ban on modding is not the solution to whatever problem you claim is driving these decisions. Alright, enough complaining about anti-consumer practices by a video game publisher. Let's talk about Nintendo again. Waka waka. Look, there's no point in drawing this out. My game of the year is The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. I dedicated an entire episode to this game back in June, so this probably comes as no surprise and I'll try not to eat up too much time talking about the game again, but I truly loved The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. As time has gone by, the hype I had for it hasn't waned. This game is special, not just in what it does on a gameplay level, but what it did for me on a personal, emotional level. Most every Zelda game quote unquote moves the series forward in some way and the most radical shift was 2017's Breath of the Wild, on which this game builds off of by reusing the same world and engine. It's one of the rare direct sequels this franchise has, but it's a game that's not only building on its predecessor, it's a game that's recontextualizing it. For me, at least. Tears of the Kingdom not only redefined the way we interact with the world of Hyrule, Ultrahand is revelatory, the recall ability is a brilliant technological feat, yada yada yada, but it also moved the world of Hyrule forward, The gameplay advancements are incredible, but what is sticking with me long-term is how this is the first time we've seen Hyrule grow and try to heal. You can sort of view all of The Legend of Zelda through the lens of apocalyptic fiction. It's a world that's ravaged by monsters and the people are constantly trying to defend themselves. This is especially true of Breath of the Wild, where the world of Hyrule was unable to meaningfully advance in the face of the Calamity. Here, for the first time, we see Hyrule in a state of reconstruction society is trying to rebuild hyrule is not just bigger than ever but it feels more alive than it ever has hyrule much like our real world is constantly in danger it is my favorite video game franchise but it is not a fantasy world i have ever imagined myself wanting to live in as vast and whimsical as so much of it is it is a world with a long history of tragedy across eras It is a land locked in a constant cycle where new incarnations of the familiar forces of power, wisdom, and courage are destined, or doomed, to fight the same battle over the same land over and over and over. It is not the most inspirational fantasy story, but we, as the players, embody the courage to fight back evil and save this land again and again and again. But it felt like... For the most part, Link was fighting this battle alone. He had allies, but they were more often there in spirit than they were physical presences. Breath of the Wild in particular felt like the most isolated game in the series. The open world of Hyrule does not have the loud, sweeping score often associated with the series. It is a more quiet, contemplative experience where you set the pace of your adventure. Where you save Hyrule from the sleepy apocalypse it has suffered through for the last hundred years. In Tears of the Kingdom, for the first time in the series, The world wasn't just fighting to survive, but to thrive. And Link is no longer alone. The sages you meet along the way take physical forms in the overworld and meaningfully help you in combat and in navigating the world. The people of Hyrule are actually taking up arms against Ganondorf's forces. Towns are being rebuilt. Construction supplies are everywhere in the world. And yes, this is a justification for you to have more things for your older hand to mess with, but it is also a reminder that you are witnessing Hyrule rebuild itself for the first time in this series. It may be goofy to say, but I found that inspiring. Link's courage inspired the courage in others. It was a chain reaction that showed the people in Hyrule that the world was worth saving, and they had the power to do it. It doesn't all have to fall on one person. A better world is possible, if we all lend a hand. So congratulations to The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom for winning my personal Game of the Year award. It may not be surprising, but I am not here to surprise. I'm here to give my honest feelings about the video games that I love, and I love this game so much. Accepting the first-ever select-and-start-correct-and-smart GOATI is the game's protagonist, Link. Link, please feel free to speak as long as you want to win game of the year is a prestigious honor and your game presented us a world with limitless opportunities I don't want to put a limit on your time so please feel free to speak oh he just left he's a silent protagonist right okay Avatar the player character yeah that's a that's a weird and anticlimactic way to end the show Uh, I can give a speech if he won't that's okay Leon I can also give a speech I'm a writer you've talked enough let's 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 just wrap up the show What's the fucking time, Jesus Christ. Where's my notes? Ah, here they are. What? Oh my god. Oh my god. Uh, folks, this is a stupid video game podcast and not the news, but I just read something that shook me to my core. The president's daughter, Ashley Graham, has been kidnapped by the Koopa King, Bowser. The United States has just announced that it has allied itself with the Mushroom Kingdom, where absolute monarchy was just reaffirmed by a government official at today's event. Normally, I wouldn't question why a European would express their fascistic beliefs so openly, but the timing of it is certainly disturbing. Especially since Leon Kennedy, the man tasked with protecting the president's daughter, is also attending this event, meaning she was left unguarded. It's possible that Ashley was planted by the US government in Princess Peach's place, knowing Bowser would attempt to kidnap her, mistaking one blonde for another. I believe that the US government staged this in order to manufacture consent for an invasion of Bowser's kingdom. Not many people know this, but Bowser's kingdom is rich in oil. That's why it's always on fire, and very obviously why the US is interested in invading it. I understand how this sounds. I know it sounds like I'm defending Bowser by talking about this. and. I'm not, I I condemn the actions of that tyrant. But read your history, folks. Who installed Bowser as a leader in his kingdom in the first place? I, I don't have the means or power to change the world, but I beg you all to read your history. Question your authority. Don't let them get away with this. Leon Kennedy, I'm begging you to please use your roundhouse kicks for good. Parry the bullet of evil with the knife of justice or fucking something, I don't know, man. Something needs to be done. I can see Mario running towards me now. I know what he is about to do and it scares me, but it confirms that my suspicions were true. And this concludes the first, and I suppose last, select and start correct and smart video game awards. The host closed his eyes and braced for whatever pain Mario intended to inflict on him. Suddenly, he felt something shift in his back pocket. He quickly dug his hand in there and pulled out a clicker, a switch labeled, Please wrap it up. He flipped the switch without hesitation. Mario had dodged bullets before, but this one wasn't named Bill. This bullet had his name on it. Following the path of Italian fascists before him, Mario met his end with gunfire. Game over. Wowie zowie. Alan Wake emerged from the darkness of the wings to greet the host. Alan, you saved me. I believe the sniper did that. Oh my god, Alan, I obviously didn't hire a sniper to hide in a theater and shoot platformer mascots. You wrote that into reality. I guess my work is getting too obvious. Alan, thank you. You saved my life. If it's okay, I would like to say a few words. I want to apologize to everyone for my behavior earlier. Yeah, 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 of course. Go ahead. Thank you. I wanted to speak from the heart for a moment. I break tradition. Sometimes my tries are outside the lines. We've been conditioned to not make mistakes, but I can't live that way. Staring at the blank page before you, open up the dirty window. Let the sun illuminate the words that you could not find. Reaching for something in the distance, so close you can almost taste it. Release your inhibitions. Feel the rain on your skin. No one else can feel it for you. Only you can let it in. No one else, no one else can speak the words on your lips. Drench yourself in words unspoken. Live your life with arms wide open. And today is where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. My name is Alan Wake. I'm a writer. That was a, a real original speech. And These words are my own. From my heart flow. Right. Sure. Alan, I'm counting four awards in your arms. Where'd that last one come from? Oh, this was Mario's. I figured he didn't need it anymore. Because he died. Sure. Yeah, fine. After everything that happened, that's still all you care about? Look, maybe to you the concept of an award show is a joke. But for some of us, the artists of the world, this is what we strive for. Not just recognition but tangible proof that we are better than our contemporaries. It consumes us, like darkness. And these are our only guiding light. A beacon in the void. Our lighthouse. And this is what made Leonardo DiCaprio sleep in animal carcasses. What drove Bradley Cooper to put on a fake prosthetic nose to play Leonard Bernstein. It's what convinced the stepbrothers director to stop being funny. And this is all we have. Jesus, man. I knew celebrities were fucked up, but... Are all video game characters freaks? Only if you write them that way. What? Only if you write them that way. What do you mean by that? I wouldn't worry about it. Alan, what do you mean? Alan? Alan, what do you mean? Sorry, but the show's over. We're out of time. What do you mean, Alan? It's time for me to go back to the dark place. But it won't be quite as dark when I get back. Answer me, Alan. what did you mean? Alan, what did you mean by that? Alan? Alan? There's a place that I go that nobody knows, where the rivers flow and I call it home, and there's no more lies. In the darkness, there's light, and nobody cries, there's only butterflies. I got a pocket full of sunshine, I got a love, and I know that it's all mine. My name is Alan Wake, I'm a writer, an award-winning writer. So uh, it turns out hosting an award show isn't as easy as I thought. That was Select and Start's first ever Correct and Smart Video Game Awards. Uh, Thank you for listening to that. And also, sorry for subjecting you to that. This started as a handful of jokes, and it just sort of spiraled into whatever the fuck you just listened to. I hope it was worth your time. I talked a lot about 2023, the last couple episodes. And I wanted to reflect on that on a personal level before I ended the episode. And what a year, huh? 2023 brought you 23 episodes of Select and Start. And I see that as a victory. The show has been incredible to make, and I'm incredibly proud of the work I've done. This has been an extremely fulfilling project. It has made me connect with people in a way that I never would have had I not made the show. I've heard so many interesting stories. I've had so many engaging conversations with people, and this has really helped me feel more connected to the medium that I love so much. Video games mean so much to me, as evidenced by all of this. Um, And it means so much to me that you listen. So thank you for that. I'm sorry the show is still bi-weekly two years in. It's not ideal, but it's what's possible for the show at this size. All of the recording and editing is still my sole responsibility. And I have a job and a life to maintain, Uh, cats to feed. Plus, I actually have to play the games I cover, too. When I started doing this show, I was like, wow, why don't more podcasts have this format? And now I'm like, oh, duh, obviously. Video games take a long fucking time to play sometimes. And I spend a long time trying to make the show as good as possible because my work is a reflection of me. And this is work I'm passionate about. Sorry, I can't do more right now. It would be the dream to do this full time, but it's, it's not there yet. But the good news is that for 2024, I have so many guests lined up and so many wonderful games I want to talk about. Some that have been claimed, many of which haven't even been brought up yet, which is, ex- which is super exciting. Like, it's so strange that I have done the show for this long and I've only done one Mario game. On one hand, that's really cool. I had such a wide variety of guests that Mario has only come up once. On the other hand, weird. I actually do have a Mario game in the pipeline uh, in 2024, but it is not a mainline game, which again, is really cool and part of why I love my show and its format so much. Obviously, we've talked about a lot of popular games on this show, but talking about games that are important to people because of their personal connection to it and not because of its popularity has exposed me to so many great and unique games I've always meant to play. It's it's got me to play games I may not have gotten around to if I were self-motivated, Of the 23 games I covered on my show this year, the ones I played specifically to talk about with my guests were Tekken 2, Metroid Prime, Final Fantasy VIII, GoldenEye 007, Spiritfarer, The Warriors, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, Inscription, and Phantasmagoria. That's nine whole games I played specifically for the show, had a great time playing them, It takes a lot to make time for games, but it never felt like a burden to play through any of these. I I love games. I loved talking about these games. I'm so, so grateful this show and the guests I had on it gave me the motivation to experience them. I would love to do more, but again, I have a full-time job that keeps everything in my life above water, and I'm still very far away from being in a place where I have time for more. I'm proud that I got every episode out on time last year. Obviously, this year's off to a rough and rocky start, but we're, we're adapting. We're adapting. I'm going to try my best in 2024 to stay ahead and make the show even better. Stay tuned and thank you so much for your support. If you're listening to this, you have helped keep the show going. I can't thank you enough. And while we're thanking people, thank you to everyone who made Select and Start possible in 2023, including my incredible guests, Suze, aka Suzel, on Twitch, and Jane Altoids from the Pacino Pod, Michael from the 5-4 Podcast, Mark Normanden, an incredible writer for both sports and gaming. Absolutely check out his work, especially Retro XP, if you love video games. Thank you to Caroline from How Have You Not Seen? Chloe from the Girls Gone Canon podcast. Thank you to filmmaker and YouTuber Adequate Emily. Thank you to Lauren Malisi, a good friend and a great writer. Buy their book of poetry, Sad Sexy Catholic. It's very good. Thank you, longtime internet friend and host of Talking Trek to you, Kev Kozer. I've known all of these people through Twitter for years. As awful as that site is, it's connected me to some truly lovely people. And I'm so Grateful that they came on the pod and talked to me about video games for a couple hours. Thank you, Jason, from the Force 5 podcast, as well as Chris Osborne from the Play Comics podcast, both of whom I've met through podcasting and whose shows I've also guested on. I was on Force 5 to talk about the top five bad dads in movies and on Play Comics to talk about the Spider-Man 2 movie game. Check those out. Listen to their shows. They're great. Thank you to uh, my good personal friend, Steph, who was on the Last of Us episode. You can follow her on TikTok as Spaxson. That's S-P-A-X-S-O-N. Thank you to Roman Fruhan, an all-around talented man and a good friend to me. Nobody loves film more than him. Thank you to Hamish Steele, a great writer, artist, and animation director. Thank you again for reaching out and coming on the show to talk about The Wind Waker. I'm a fan of Hamish's work, and it touches my heart that they are also a fan of mine. Also, a huge thank you to Jamieson Borak for also reaching out and also coming on to talk about a Zelda game. My favorite Zelda game and my favorite game of all time, in fact, Majora's Mask sends a writer on Harley Quinn, and he very specifically wrote my favorite episode of Harley Quinn, season three, episode eight, Batman Begins Forever. We didn't get to talk about this on the episode because we were already talking for over three hours, and there was also the SAG After Strike and a WGA strike. We wanted to be considerate of that. Great show. Thank you for coming on my show, Jamison. And another huge thank you to Mike Petrie, who not only came on to talk about Final Fantasy VII, he also composed the show's new, incredible theme song that I've been using since the Majora's Mask episode. Mike reached out and graciously offered his talents, and I graciously, graciously accepted it because I am a fan of him and the projects he's worked on. Again, we didn't get to talk about this too much because of the WGA and SAG strikes, but he is a musician, orchestrator, music producer, writer, and composer, in addition to his work on Broadway. He's also worked on stuff like At Home with Amy Sedaris, orchestrated on John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, and Documentary Now specifically in one of my all-time favorite episodes, Original Cast Album Co-op, a parody of the Original Cast Album Company documentary. Great stuff, great guy, great guest. Thank you so much for the theme song, Mike. It's a true representation of the growth the show has made since it first started. From having no theme song, to having a slapdash theme song using the Super Mario 2 overworld theme, to having a true, proper, original banger courtesy of a Broadway musician. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Mike. I will try my best to make the show as good as the song you made for it. And also, thank you to all of my returning guests who are not only there for me this year, but from the start of Select and Start. Thank you to Eric, Eric Peacock from the Soundtracker podcast for coming on to my show twice now. It's always a blast to have you on. I've been on Soundtracker myself to talk about the Royal Tenenbaums soundtrack. And I was also in a Patreon-exclusive episode of his to talk about our top five video game adaptations into movies. Both were amazing times. Check out his show if you haven't. Truly, it's 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 a blast. Thank you to Manu, a.k.a. Manuclear Bomb, a.k.a. My Very Good Friend. Check out his podcast, My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and the Not A Cast Podcast, as well as the now-concluded podcast, Sans Frontiers. Manu was my very first guest in my very first episode of the show, and he was my last guest in 2023. I owe so much to him for the success of my show. His support and his presence helped to get the show off the ground. Love you, buddy. Thank you to Avery Robin Ott, who made the art for this show and was in my Pokemon Emerald episode last year and in my Spider-Man episode, which he did in costume. He didn't have to do that. It is an audio-only experience, but stuff like that is also why he's my best friend in the world and also my roommate. He has literally made every episode possible by lending his talent to make the show's logo and also by living with me accommodating me and supporting me the whole way. Thank you, Avery. I love you. Thank you to all of the incredible people at the Moonshot Network. It's incredible to be a part of this network, especially one with such creative people in it. Thank you to Jay, Riley Hopkins, and Andrew Sherman for being on the show and for supporting the show. Please support their shows on the Moonshot Network as well. Support all the shows on the Moonshot Network, really. I have some more guests from that network coming on in the future. It's a great network full of great, talented people. You can check out all kinds of wonderful shows at MoonshotPods.com. being a part of the moonshot network has been incredible and I'm deeply deeply grateful for everything they've done to support this show. What a great group of people. I've had incredible guests on the show. All of my guests. have been super wonderful, gracious, kind I'm, I'm, I'm very proud that I've cultivated a space that makes people excited to talk about video games and also listen to other people talk excitedly about video games it's it it feels magical and the fact that so many incredible people who've also worked on incredible stuff like my show enough to want to be a part of it in some way is the most affirming thing in the world as a creator and if you're also a creative person or work in the creative field consider hiring or working with these people in some way any of my guests really Uh, me too while we're at it but especially all of my guests
0: I'm also available though.
1: Thank you again to all of my wonderful guests, past, present, and future. Thank you to all of the wonderful people who support the show. Thank you to my three cats, Naja, Piqui, and Funky Boy, the most beautiful creatures in the world. And thank you for listening to this episode of Select and Start.